Good evening. Y'all may be wondering, why are we doing 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to 14? It's because when I was doing the book of Corinthians, something happened on the Sunday we were supposed to do 11 to 14. And so I moved it to here. So it sounds like it's all by itself, but I'm sure y'all remember when we did 1 Corinthians. Well, maybe not. Oh, the thing about this section of Corinthians especially, I think, and it it covers a whole lot of scripture, uh, is that when you look at it, it's like a story. Have y'all ever watched a movie where something showed up at the beginning of the movie and it didn't really mean anything to you at the moment and then you get to later on in the movie and you go, that's what that was all about. And it all connects together and you see the, the tendency that goes all the way through. And, and in stories, that we have that all the time. We kind of have hints toward things or, or little things that come along to say this is what's going to be. in chapters 11 to 14, I believe, revolve around one thing. And that's because chapter 13 is the one that we think about that really focuses on it. When you all think about 1 Corinthians, what's your favorite chapter? 13. Most everybody, because it talks about love. In fact, when you, in chapter 13, I've got a set in wedding vows that are becoming more popular as they go along that are based upon 1 Corinthians 13 and love and making a promise that my love for you will be. And it describes that idea of Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And we could talk about those verses all night and still have a very good and meaningful talk. Because that, that is such a wonderful section of verses. And chapter 13 on its own is such, oh, so good in talking about all that goes on. And, and we know when it talks, when God tells us about love, when he lives out love, when Paul puts these words down and describing what God describes love as, we know that love is more than just words. That every one of these describes love as being active, an attitude. It, it talks about how love is life and how it is expressed in, in every aspect of who we are. And so it's no wonder that, well, that this, this set of verses is so popular, is so well-known because it's so meaningful. I mean, it, to think about having love like that, to be loved by somebody in, in just like this description, to be able to love somebody else just like that is so very meaningful. In chapter 13, he'll frame it and, and remind us how important love is. The first three verses, he, he, he reminds us. says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, then I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so you, you can look at all that we might look at as, as being good things to do. I mean, a faith that is so, so focused on God that we're able to move mountains, that we would give over everything we have to the poor, even our own bodies. But he says, if you don't have love, what does it mean? We've missed it. So that's the importance that God places on love. That we, if it's, an, it's a part of life that when we don't have it, everything else becomes empty. No matter what we may do, what, whatever we may practice in our desire to honor God, if we don't have love, we're not really honoring God. 
and all that goes on. So we, 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 without love, it shows that there's so much we don't understand about God and what He desires of us. In, in verses 8 down to 13, at the end of the chapter, he starts pointing out, now he ends up, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Wonderful reminders, isn't it? To say when you look at, at all things, if you start listing out in, in everything that we're about as, as believers in Christ, as we serve God and we talk about what matters, we can talk about our faith, and faith is so very important. We can talk about hope and how hope keeps us alive. But he says, love is the one at the, at the top of the list. So we could talk about chapter 13 and really feel good and have some good things out of it. But I want to back up to chapter 11. Now the thing about these chapters is I think, y'all remember Hansel and Gretel? You know, when they headed off, how did they try to keep track of where they went? I had breadcrumbs. Not the best thing if you want to try to go back where you came from because eventually something's going to come along and snap that up. But the idea of breadcrumbs is still, when you go through Scripture and you follow along, you find little hints. You find breadcrumbs along the path to know there's something more than what's being talked about. And so when we get to chapter 11 and 12 and 14, I think what I, what I want us to do this evening is to look at the breadcrumbs. Because if we don't look at the breadcrumbs, we miss really the full meaning of what the whole text is all about. And so when we watch that, now in chapter 11, it's easy for us. Now, I'm going to look at the whole chapter. But when you start out, wouldn't it be fun tonight we'll start talking about how long a woman's hair ought to be? If it's longer than mine, you're probably good. But uh, how many times through, the, through generations have this, has this been talked about? Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, we can get into all those details, but I think when we start talking about this chapter, we have to keep in mind that we see that oh, we can get distracted if we're not careful. And forget what the meaning is. Because I don't think God just gives us arbitrary rules. Okay, on Thursdays, you're supposed to wear blue. And we go, okay, but what does that mean? And so when we get into chapter 11, we start talking about uh, hair, and we talk about all that goes on. I know that God has something more into it. And if we wanted to dive into hair and all that goes on, what we're going to eventually start talking about is culture. You know, for the Romans, they, during this time stretch, spent a lot of time talking about women's hair and the meaning of it. They focused on it quite a bit. You know, men just have so much going on, they've got to spend their time talking about what women ought to do. And so when we have all this laid out, we start to realize that this idea of hair and all that went on, for them, there was a meaning in their culture that if a woman had her hair a certain way, it had a meaning that wasn't, there were some that was negative and then some that was positive. 
And, and in that, when you start reading the chapter and realizing the cultural significance of what the hair meant, then when he goes, that, that starts to make better sense. Because the reality is, God's not saying your hair has got to be so long. I mean, who decides? And so there's something deeper than that. And so what I think part of it, you get down to, um, did I write down the verse? I don't know if I wrote down the verse. Well, the bottom of this section, he uses the word, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, uh, some versions will say want to be argumentative. Some, some will talk about that. So if you, and I think this is the idea of what he's really aiming for because he's saying, we've got something we're doing here. But I think behind this, what we realize is this section of scriptures and talking about here wasn't about that, oh, you've got to do your hair this way. It was more about loving the people in the community around them. That we can be obnoxious. Or we can present ourselves in a way that people are willing to hear what we're saying about Jesus. Um, well, there's some folks we know right now that are in a, uh, I want to say Qatar. It's, it's Qatar, isn't it? Is that the proper way to say that country? Qatar? But he works for Texas A&M. And he and his family have gone over there and they've got, they've got, they show pictures of things they do with their kids all the time. I mean, they've got activities. They're playing Little League. They're at this place. They're at this place. And they're doing all kinds of activities. But the reality is in any of those countries over there, for Western people to do all those activities, it means they're in their own little area and they can do these things. But if they wanted to talk about Jesus over there, you know what they have to do? They can't be who they are dress how they are and act like that. They've got to, they have to be aware of what it means in their culture. So if any of the ladies wanted to go to Saudi, now it would be illegal for you to teach somebody, but if you wanted to go talk to any of the other women over there about Jesus, I, how are you going to be best heard? If you love them, you know, I don't wear a burqa, but that's what would be the way to get them to listen to what's going on. And when we think about cultural things, we know there are things that if we love the people that we're around, we know this is just an expression in that culture of love. And so I, and I think part of it is just that idea of realizing where we fit into people. And love drives what we have going on. Even the people in our neighbors, in, the, in our communities, we know that God wants us to be a people who love. And that changes how we see what we do. You know, if I... If, if I was going to be loving and go down to College Station and walk on campus, odds are, and I want people to hear what I have to say, odds are I'm not wearing a burnt orange t-shirt with a certain logo across the front. They, you know, I, I'm just looking for a fight. Well, actually, they wouldn't fight. They're all pretty nice. But, you know, we, we know that there are places that that fits. And that's when they talked about hair, that there was love underneath it for how they decided that. Well, now, verses 7, and, and the rest of it, he talks about the Lord's Supper. But we have to keep in mind that we don't want to forget what the underlying current in all of this is as well. Because the problem they had in Corinth was that they weren't loving each other because they were being divided. They were being divisive. And they were choosing up signs, and they were fussing at each other, and they were carrying on, and they, they missed what God had in mind. And so when they got together on a Sunday morning, and they gathered up around the Lord's table, they had all kinds of problems. And so he says in, in uh, 17 18, the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now that ought to be a phrase that ought to jump out to us. 
That what we're doing wasn't, isn't doing, is harming people instead of helping people. It says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. That there's a problem. You're not being loving. So now when he talks about the idea of the Lord's Supper and all that they had going on, because some of them would, would eat and some of them there wouldn't be anything when they come along because they'd have that, uh, the love feast and all that went on and they wouldn't be aware of each other. And he, he talks about, look at who we are. And when he talks about the, the, the Lord's Supper in that context, he reminds them, this is what it means. And so we get down to verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're missing the point. Because this isn't something we do individually. It's, it's who we are as a group that joins us together. So what he wants them to do, to be loving, what he tells them is, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. I, I like the translation that says, Wait for each other. Wait. Because it's more important for us to be together than for us to worry about we got to do it now. Now, we live in more time-conscious culture than they did. But for us, we have to keep in mind whatever we do that shows divisions is already problems. If we love each other, we're going to be aware of that and know we need to, we need to take care of this. And so that underlying uh, current is that we know because of love that we'll be, we'll be thinking about others. And even though we're taking part in things that are religious acts, taking part in the Lord's Supper, we can't, you know, we don't want to... It's like, no, you still have love in the middle of that as we go along. Chapter 12, he talks about the body of Christ and the gifts that are in it. And that, now that sounds like something that, hey, you know, you, you would start to read through this and go, well, he talks about this, he talks about this, but we have to watch for the breadcrumbs as we go along because he, he starts talking about all that goes on in the body. And so when we talk about the body, he reminds us that as a body of believers, as the church, we are not made of identical people. We're all different, aren't we? Isn't that good? Because then, you know, God knows who we are. So he says, just as the body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. That we are joined together into this body, into this one church. With all the differences we have, with all the abilities and talents that we have, with the gifts that God has given us. And we're all different in that, but we still make up one body because to be a body, we have to have different parts as they come along. And so in chapter 12, he lays that out to remind us that we are all neat, that we're all different. So we can never say, foot should say because I'm not a head and I don't belong to the body. Because you don't, you don't do something or you're not like somebody else doesn't mean you don't belong. You still belong. Because you're still part of the body. And we can go the other way. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That we can't do that for each other where we look at each other and go, no, I've got it. I, you know, you, we don't need you. So no, God says all of us are part and we belong to each other. So you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. That we're joined together in that body. Now, I think part of the reason he has in mind in, in that is that we have to remember the underlying current, the breadcrumbs spread throughout it. Because for us to be the body of Christ is a reflection of our attitude and our love for each other. Because if you love, if you love your own body, you take care of it. That's Ephesians 5. Here, if we love Christ, we take care of his body. 
and we're there for each other. And so when he talks about all the gifts that we have, he says the reason we have these different gifts is that each one of them is given. Each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, your abilities, your talents, what God has given you, where he's placed you in this world, is not just so you can be on your own and do what you do. You're here to make a difference in other people's lives. In the way you're able to do it. You're not, you're not the same as everybody else. Every one of us is different, which means all of us have a place and a way that we serve and make a difference in each other's lives. We need each other. And because we love each other, this is we see how I'm able to make a difference for you, and you are able to see how you make a difference for me, that we're connected that way and make a difference that way for each other. See, the love that's there, expressed there is we don't look at our abilities and gifts as this is what I do. We look at it as this is how I make a difference to the people around me. That we're all in this together. Verses 24 to 26, I, lo- I love how he expresses this because it reflects the love. He says God has put the body together. He talks about how he said, okay, you've got different, par- different parts of the body, and they all have their different uh, levels of, of uh, I lost my, my word, but they, they all have different levels of honor and such. And so he says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body. There's one. God, is, God has placed it as a spot to where we're all joined together, no matter what our place is and where we are in our faith, where we, you know, we are one body. And that love is, says, is expressed in a way that we're always united and that its, that it's parts should have equal concern for each other. You hear the love expressed from chapter 13 coming up? That we notice each other and we have that concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That that unity that we have, that joining together as a body means that we see each other and we know where every one of us is. That when somebody is struggling and hurting and and, and, in pain, we, we... we suffer with them because we, we feel that because of our love for them. When something good is going on, we rejoice with them. We celebrate with them because of our love for them and, and our joining together. And so we have that all come together that no matter what's going on in our differences, we still love each other. We still love each other. And so we get to see that all along. Chapter 14. He's going to bring assemblies. He's going to talk about gifts. He's going to bring it all together. But you know what we still find underneath? Love. Still have the breadcrumbs. So first three verses. Follow the way of love, after we got through chapter 13, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And we could have all kinds of funds in this chapter too, but let's fo- we're going to focus on breadcrumbs. Now, one of the things he talks about here that we have to keep in mind is he says, no matter what's going on, no matter what gift somebody has, if you, for, for all that goes on, what, what he wants to make sure happens is that there's meaning and understanding taking place. Because if we don't have that, we're missing out what, on what God has in mind for us. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. He's saying if, if there's no understanding, it doesn't help anybody. We've got to have understanding. Verses 14 to 16, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. 
I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You see, he, he emphasizes we've got to have understanding to be able to, when we sing together, we don't just sing because we're putting out notes. We sing because of the words that we're singing together. When we have anything that goes on, we want people to understand. And that's our goal and desire to have that meaning and understanding to, to everything that happens as we gather together. And that's, that's his goal and, and desire for all of that to come together. And so when we, we uh, verse 19 says, he, he emphasized, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a time. See how Paul elevates? We've got to have understanding. It matters. But the reason we want to have understanding is because of the current of love underneath. Because if I want others to understand what I'm saying about Christ, if all of us want others to understand as we assemble together, we want them to hear what's being said, to understand it. It's because we care about them. We love them and all of that. And so when we we see in chapter 14 over and over again, he'll emphasize this. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. There, there's that, the, the, again, he talks about understanding, but now he talks about when we have understanding, we're able to build up each other, which is the word edify. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. There it is again, that we need to, to focus on building each other up. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Over and over again, he's going to talk about how what we want to make sure is that everybody understands, but the goal is understanding leads to be building up, the strengthening of faith, to be able to draw closer together, all that goes on and everything. Uh, what shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. It says, don't go, th- we're not going through the motions. God does not want us to sit here together and just go through the motions and, and punch the time clock. He wants us to have understanding. He wants us to be built up together, that when we gather together, that we encourage and edify one another. That's what he wants, that we have that understanding. And, and in that, because there, the truth is, now we can talk about, well, I can, go, I can go out up on the mountains and feel so very close to God. Y'all ever felt that? Be in awe of nature. See, the thing is, God doesn't just have us come together so we can worship Him. He has us come together so we can be here for each other. So that we can love one another, build each other up, take care of each other, and all that goes on. And so when we, see, we look at it from that perspective, see, oh, see I'm, I'm stopping short over and over so all, for all, you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. I mean, you, you go through that whole chapter and you can't miss the underlying current of how we, in, even in our assemblies, that we love each other. That It's not just a one-on-one thing, but love guides everything that we do as a body of believers. Even our assemblies. That love should have an impact on how we think about what goes on. 
because we think, does this, does this build everybody up? Does this encourage? Does this help us to become more of who God wants us to be? And so we have that focus to say, this is what matters. And I think part of it. Now, here i got a question for you all. What qualifies somebody to be a real Texan? Hmm, that's a challenge, isn't it? Uh, we can talk about clothing. If you do, you have to have a own a pair of cowboy boots to be a real Texan. How about uh, you know cowboy hat to go with it? I've got my dad's cowboy hat. I guess I've never owned one. Can somebody be born in California, move to Texas, and be considered a real Texan? I was born in California. Haven't been there since. Oh, I, I'm getting personal with Jane there too, because you know that's. Uh, <laughs> You know, when we start making a list, there are some things. How about you have to learn how to say y'all at least to be a Texan. Now, that, I think, is bare minimum. You've got to learn how to say y'all. But when you think about that, we know there are some things we connect to being a Texan. You've got to like Blue Bell ice cream. That's just, there's no debate on that one. We know there are some things that we connect to that, that this is what it means to be from Texas, and that we're proud of those kind of things. And, and the thing about 1 Corinthians 13, it's that same kind of reminder. It reminds us, when we wear the name Christ, he says, it's not this what we say that determines that. He says, if we're going to be, we're going to live Following Christ, it's going to be seen in our love. Jesus tells us that in John 13, 34 and 35. That's how people know we're his disciples. First Corinthians 13 will remind us of that, that if we can do all kinds of wonderfully good things, but if we don't have love, we've missed it. Then in all things, that love becomes just who we are and how we live our lives. Do you need your body this evening? Your brothers and sisters, prayer and encouragement? And maybe there's something you need some help with, some encouragement in some way. But if you need to respond, would you come now as we stand and sing?